There's a word that I hear a lot these days on the news. It's called lawfare. And I decided I needed to go and look it up. Lawfare, kind of like warfare. And, of course, there's a connection of the two. And it's defined by the Cambridge Dictionary as the use of legal action to cause problems for an opponent. And it's often used sort of as a, as a measure short of actual kinetic warfare between nation states. So you use lawfare. Sanctions are a good example of what lawfare is. Uh, there's a blog devoted to, to lawfare at this point. It's uh, filled with, with, with uh, everything having to do with, with our former president at this point. So this is not going to be a sermon, though, on legal theory or on just war theory. But it does strike me that using a system, the legal system, that is meant to settle differences peacefully, to use that as a means for exacerbating differences might, might be considered unethical. Something like lawfare seems to have occurred in the Corinthian church, uh, which prompted St. Paul to write to them and ask, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? And so what I think is clear from Paul here is that he doesn't want lawfare practiced in the church. And he doesn't want believers going at each other using lawfare, particularly by recourse to the secular, which in those days were thoroughly pagan courts. He, Paul, intended for the church, the local church, to be the primary court, the means of redress for, for uh, disputes among Christians, among believers. And so I think it's an interesting question, especially in light of today's reading from Matthew, to ask, what if the church were to do this again? Instead of just being a house of worship where you sing songs and you hear a sermon and some readings, what if this were a court? What if this were a place where you came to have your grievances redressed? What if the Church of Jesus Christ were to reassert her rightful role in helping her members to be reconciled to each other? Jesus lays the groundwork for the Christian redress of grievances in today's gospel reading from Matthew. Jesus describes the local church as a kind of court of appeals, saying that if an offending church member does not respond to a personal appeal, which is me or you going to someone who's wronged us directly, and imagine how many problems that would solve if we just spoke right to each other instead of wrote or gossiped about each other. It would be, that would be a good first step right there. But he says, if that person won't, won't listen to you, then bring two or three witnesses back. Uh, two or three other members of the church, bring them back so that they can be a witness. And then if the person still does not listen and will not be reconciled, then the whole church is to be assembled. And this time, not for a worship service, but for a, a kind of court, a court, a, a trial, if you will. Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, the Jews to whom this was spoken to were a race of people, the chosen race, and, and really, in their minds, the only race, right? And everyone else was lumped in as the Gentiles. And so what Jesus is saying is here is you cast them out from that fellowship. You're, you excommunicate them from the roles of the chosen people. 
So no one really thinks of the church this way anymore, and we haven't thought of the, of the church in this way for a long time. And I, I think that is in part due to what happened when Constantine legalized Christianity, or at least removed the prescriptions against it, and then subsequent emperors established Christianity and law. The ministry of justice was taken up by the state, and it is a ministry. Uh, so you have all through Christian history the last 2,000 years nominally Christian kings who rule over nominally Christian subjects, and so justice is then being executed in the, in the king's name, the king being answerable only to God. A few hundred years ago in this country, we, we threw out that order of things, but we, we pres- preserved more or less the basic idea because justice is now exercised in the people's name. And in theory, the people would answer to God. Now, in both cases, king and people, if the king does not answer to God, if the people do not answer to God, then justice is likely to be perverted, which I think was the case in pagan Rome and in all these pagan cultures. That Americans may be increasingly uh, thinking thinking of themselves as a people who don't think they need to answer to God seems evident to me given the way we are behaving and in some of the laws that are being passed. The situation in Israel in the time of Ezekiel is is dealing with a similar situation. The the nation of Israel, both king and people, have turned from God, and their situation is dire. Justice has been perverted in Israel. One of the Psalms reads, O Lord, when will justice again be just? And so in this moment in Israel's history, God appoints Ezekiel to be his prophet of justice. Listen to these words of Ezekiel's commission. God says, whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. So in other words, if I sit silent and do not bring a word against a person who is wicked, That person will get his punishment, but I will be punished along with him. What strikes me about this commission is the responsibility that I've just described that's that's placed on Ezekiel. He must pronounce the verdict of God's justice on a wicked people or else face their punishment. This implies two things. The The first is this. Justice is a mutual responsibility. It's not meant to be just sort of handed down from on high. It's a mutual responsibility. If a brother sins against me and I do not tell him his fault, I'm punished along with him. There's a mutuality there. But that cuts against the grain, doesn't it? Not only have we sort of offloaded justice to to the state as a ministry, but we're also conditioned simply to be polite, right, and not to say anything to suffer silently. And there is a passage where we're told to turn the other cheek, right? So maybe, maybe that's what we're, we're, we're doing here, just simply thinking we're being good Christians when we say nothing, when we don't talk about the wrongs or the grievances of the people that have offended us. We're just turning the other cheek, right? But here's an application of where you need to read the whole Bible. You need to let it speak to other parts of the Bible. You need to let the Bible interpret the Bible. And so when we hear the word turn the other cheek, it needs to be, it needs to be balanced with these admonitions as well. Because if we turn the other cheek in the face of sin and we don't admonish a brother or sister, that brother or sister remains on the path to perdition and we go along with him or her. We also seethe with resentment because it is true that justice delayed is justice denied. And meanwhile, our brother or sister may continue in ignorance that he or she has done anything wrong to hurt us. And we miss the opportunity of reconciliation if we don't bring it up. But I think sometimes we 
find it is more delicious, shall we say, to seethe in our resentment, to steep in our resentment, because then we can feel superior. I'm turning the other cheek, and the person is so callous and so cruel that he or she doesn't even know what he's done wrong. But in fact, we're not superior to our brother at all. And God will hold us accountable if that brother or sister dies in his or her sin. The second application is this. The whole church, the whole church is to play the role of watchman for the house of Israel. Now, that, those words were, were part of uh, God's commission to Ezekiel, be the watchman for the house of Israel. But we are also to be in that prophetic role. We are to be watchmen for the house of Israel. And that needs, needs, means we need to know the law of God. We need to know that law ourselves, and we need to be willing to hold our fellow church members accountable to it. We need to be ready to serve on those ad hoc one and two person juries, right? Now, I got a jury summons the other day, and, and the first thing I did was go to the website, fill it out, and say, I'm, I'm delaying it for six months, right? I mean, we need to have a, a more willingness to be on those ad hoc, those instantaneous journey, ju- juries that form to hear the testimony against a brother or a sister, to render judgment, to receive his repentance, and to be a witness to the restoration of fellowship. That's, after all, what it's all about. The right to be tried by a jury of one's peers, that's a bedrock principle of our legal system. But I think what Jesus and Paul are getting at in these readings, these passages, is who is the peer? Who is the peer of a believing Christian? And the answer can be only another believing Christian, because who is better to know when a Christian's soul is in danger than a fellow Christian? Your brother and sister in Christ who knows the law will care a good deal more than the world will ever care about your relationship with God and anything that you are doing that could damage that relationship. But by contrast, the world only tends to care about justice when some powerful interest has been offended. And for this reason, the local church needs to be willing to assemble as a whole to minister justice and discipline and the ministry of reconciliation to her members. So I conclude with two words here of application. The first is a word of warning, and the warning is from Jesus' own lips. The warning is this. Jesus says, if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, as the member of an alien race, and not just any member of an alien race, but one who is corrupt and fraudulent at that, one who is working against your interests. Now, you sometimes might hear a bit of us versus them in my preaching, but it's right here in the text and from the lips of Jesus himself. And remember, the us here is always the children of God who have been reconciled to him and to each other. And the them are also those children of God, but those who refuse to be reconciled and forgiven. Jesus intended for there to be a bright line between the church and the world, between the justice administered by the saints of God in the house of God and the justice administered by the ungodly in the courts of iniquity. By saints, I don't mean people with halos in pictures. I mean the ordinary members of an ordinary church who are anything but ordinary by virtue of being born again. We fear the justice of an unjust world because it can lock us up It can confiscate our property, and it can put us to death. But we ought to take more seriously the justice of the saints who have the power to bind people in fellowship on earth and in heaven, bind them in fellowship to Jesus and to each other, and who also have the power to loose them from that fellowship, which means also 
the loss of their friendship with God. The second is a word of hope. The point of the church's discipline is to achieve reconciliation through repentance. We cannot have the first without the second, and we cannot repent if we are not convicted. That is, if we do not own what we have done wrong. And here's, a, here's an example from the reading today from, from Ezekiel of what conviction sounds like. Listen to the words of the people of Israel pleading with Ezekiel. They say, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Conviction in God's court always means the death penalty, and yet the church ministers a mercy that promises a new life, a resurrection life through repentance and reconciliation. Again, from Ezekiel, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? This is the ministry of mercy, and this ministry is vital to the church's mission. It is so important that whenever the church assembles to exercise her ministry of discipline and mercy and repentance and reconciliation, even if it's just one or two church members, Jesus promises to be with us. Amen.